Good day, folks. This is Shane Hasty for the InfoQ Culture Podcast. I'm at the Agile 2018 conference, and I'm sitting down with Simon Powers. Simon is the founder of Adventures with Agile, based in London. Simon, welcome. You and I know each other, but we probably the audience doesn't know you too well. Do you want to tell us a bit about yourself, please? Yeah, sure, absolutely. First of all, thank you for inviting me on this podcast, Shane. We've known each other for uh, about a year, um, so there has been that chance to get to know each other. So for those of you who have not come across me and Adventures with Agile, so me first, uh, I have a technical background. I have about 20, 20 odd years, probably 25, but if you actually count all of them, in uh, large-scale architecture and designing large systems for tens of thousands of people. And I really got into the agile space probably around 2005, 2006, because being in large scale architecture, it was very difficult to actually get anything delivered and certainly not as we architects designed it. So the challenges which we faced really was that the organizations were not geared up to really deliver the kind of stuff that we had envisioned. And so I spent most of my time actually talking to people rather than designing systems, even though I was an architect, and figuring out how organizations could actually deliver large-scale, complex systems. And Agile seemed to have good methodologies and ways of working to achieve that aim. And for the last 13, 14 years, I've been working with very large organizations to move towards agile ways of working to achieve those technical aims to make businesses more successful through technology. So make businesses more successful through technology. That sounds so easy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if if only it were. Yeah, so I think that the agile industry has changed hugely in that time in where it's been focusing. So back in the early days, I uh, say early days, early days for me was uh, 2005, obviously Agile had been around for a bit longer than that, but for me that was the early days and really it was about focusing on small teams and we looked at things like Scrum and Kanban and some of the technology things like CICD to get our pipelines to uh, work out to customers quickly and things like that. But I really think that the that it's changed hugely in the last 10, 15 years. The problems, the technological problems of automated coding and things like that have largely been solved. It doesn't mean to say everyone's doing it, but we know how to do it. The real challenge is now removing impediments for large teams. And when I say large teams, I'm talking about minimum 80 people plus who are working on a particular product and really working with leadership and some of the larger organizational impediments which stand in the way of people being innovative and uh, mastering as a team the technology which is, is in front of them. So it's less technological challenges I see from an agile space and more about a cultural challenge which is impeding us being able to do amazing technology things if you see what I mean. How does a team of 80 people work? This is really what I call the whole team rather than the sort of mini teams or sub teams. Now most people think of a team seven plus or minus two people yeah, because two pizza team. Exactly. Yeah. And there's a good reason for that because it's the number of people that we can successfully talk to and get to know on a day-to-day basis. However, most of the software projects that we and hardware projects that we find in organizations require a lot more than nine people. In most cases it can require anything up to 80, 100 people, in some cases thousands of people. And so really the challenge now is how do we build these large-scale complex problems when we know that seven people isn't enough? 
And so what springs up are things like dependency management, coordination, consistency, keeping up skill sets without siloing people into skill set silos, and getting a sense of identity with the wider team rather than the identity with the seven plus or minus two people. And the reason for that is because what we're delivering is products, and we're deli- or products and services. And if it takes 80 or 90 people to deliver a product or service, then that's the team. Because then we've got a set of people working consistently and collaboratively to the aim for the customer. And so really that's, I think, where some of the challenge lies. And really, I think that the people would naturally collaborate at that level, given the right organisational structure and space to be able to do that. Now, people aren't used to coordinating at that level, and so it's outside of their experience. But that doesn't mean to say that given the right support, the right process, the right facilitation, that that isn't possible, because we've seen it and it is possible, and it works very well. So you say, given the right what are the rights? So for the, the person who's listening to this podcast who's saying, yeah, that's my organization. We're really sucking at this. Yeah. What do we need to do? How do we structure? How do we create this collaborative shared vision, etc.? And that's the real question because this is really key because if you get this bit wrong, it seems like it doesn't work. The whole Agile thing doesn't work. But we've seen it work. It does work. And it's really about getting it done in the right order. Now, The experience that we've got in the Agile consultancy is that leaders have to go first. Bottom-up transformations, they they don't work. They seem to work for a while, but sooner or later we hit against the organisational impediments and unless there is leadership buy-in or leadership change, we simply don't have the authority to make structural changes or large-scale cultural changes which which are needed. So it must start with leadership. Now, if we approach leadership with a sales mindset then we will fail because nobody wants to be sold to. It's just like on a Saturday morning when you may get a salesman call you and you're sitting at home. Most people, when I ask that question, how do you deal with that salesperson? Mostly it's not very favorably. And Put the phone down. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that's the same with leadership. So really it's about not focusing on agility. It's about focusing on the real challenges which leadership face. And by focusing on their challenges and really understanding what real business needs they face, we can then start to understand what is needed for that. And if once leadership realise that we're actually working with them on their problems, we're on their side, then we have the ability to change structure. And if we change structure such that we have cross-functional collaborative teams, and that could be outside of tech, it's like if your business is split between product and tech, then it means business and tech working together as a team. If you have marketing sales teams, they're just silo teams, just like testing was, just like operations was before DevOps. Marketing and sales are just silo teams. What we're looking for is to create a structure such that we've got self-organizing, a real self-organizing team at scale. And that requires leadership buy-in. But we can't just turn all the organisation and flip everything all in one go. At least some people manage to do that. It's not been my experience personally that I've been able to do that. So what we look at is doing Agile in an Agile way. So we know what the challenges are. We know what the business problems are because we've spoken to leadership and we understand what their real challenges are. And now we run short experiments as a collective team. So the team themselves, and when I say the team, I mean the whole team, collectively design experiments 
that are short-lived, so say four weeks, and we try something which on the ways of working, which slowly incrementally move us towards being able to solve those underlying business problems more effectively. And the typical structure and process for this, to start with, is just to get everybody in a room, so large-scale facilitation, no more than maybe an hour or maybe two hours is needed to start with. We can do things like running things like open space for learning, things like future search for, um, for understanding our strengths and how those play into how we want to look at our challenges in the future. We can run facilitation exercises like deep democracy for psychological safety and for diversity and inclusion. And then there's an, any number of different facilitation exercises you can run for retrospectives and things that you can look up on web for large-scale facilitation. So ultimately what we're aiming for is the move towards self-organisation at scale to solve the real business problems that leadership face. These are not trivial changes. No, and that's why it's so difficult, and that's why it takes so long. But we have to start with leadership and then incrementally and safely, risk-free, move towards a self-organising whole team that is cross-functional in its nature and empowered to make decisions at a local level. That seems to me to be the best way to solve the types of technological problems that we face for both innovation and for competing in the marketplace. I think the key thing is to be inclusive, to encourage diversity, and with diversity it's not just diversity in terms of race and gender, it's diversity in terms of opinions that are marginalised outside of the culture. So looking for opinions which go against the norm, the elephant in the room. How do we make it safe to have those kind of conversations? If we bring that kind of psychological safety and create the identity at the team level, then the team can be self-empowered to run the experiments with a bit of help and learning to overcome business challenges. That, to me, seems to be enterprise agility in a nutshell. I mean, it's not just take one of the big frameworks and drop it in. No, I don't think so. I think that the challenge for this is that the frameworks have been designed by very clever people and that's fantastic and I have nothing at all against the frameworks. The challenges that I see with it is that what we're doing is perpetuating the same level of one person's the expert telling everybody else this is how it's done and so that people then follow that and what it does is it takes away from self-organisation. And so I think that we can take things out of all of the frameworks, teach those as concepts, as things that work, and very incrementally through learning, through experimentation, the teams can design their own frameworks, or their own ways of working, it doesn't have to be a framework, the ways of working that solve their business problems, and that can be done quite quickly. So for a person who's recently moved or is in the position of being a a leader in a technical aspect of teamwork, how do they lead change and what can they do where their sphere of influence is not the executive level? That's where most people find themselves and the key here is this idea, although many people don't like the word, I still stick with it, which is the servant leadership and what this means is, is other than the word servant, which often has negative connotations in our western society what we're really looking for for that role is to work out what the team can do to enable them to solve their own problems rather than trying to solve those problems for them. 
Now, right now, your teams may not be able to do that themselves. They may lack the experience, they may lack the get up and go, the integrity even, and you may not even trust your teams to do that. So therein lies the job, to create the trust, to create the expertise, to create the environments in which the team can really excel, be proud of what they do and master what they do themselves. And the role then becomes an enabler to make those teams great. And often we fall, especially people who have just been in that leadership position, especially if you're in an organisation which is growing rapidly, then often we find ourselves as technical leaders who have led a team of, say, 5, 10 people. We now suddenly find ourselves in a team of 20, 30, 80 people. And it is a different management skill to lead 80 people than 7 people. So my recommendation would be to take the time to learn about management, learn about how to manage people, but emphasise mainly on the creation of an environment such that people can be amazing. Most technical people don't last being technical people unless they have a passion for it. And if they have a passion for it, it means you can channel that passion into their own personal growth and their own development. And once you can do that, once you've created the environment, get out of the way and solve other problems around the teams and the other things which stop that team being amazing. So you mentioned learn about management. One of the things that that is almost a cliche is we take the best technical person, we promote them because they're really good at technical stuff, and now they're the worst manager, and and we leave them with almost no guidance. Because it's a podcast, you won't be able to tell, but I'm smiling very broadly because this almost happens everywhere. We, we as a, a meaning the industry in general, as in the world out there, business world, seems to feel that managers somehow are magically able to manage large groups of people. And, and this just time and time again, this is not the case. Now, I have seen good HR programs coming out where some of the principles of servant leadership and the things we've just talked about are embedded in management training. But often this is half a day, one day course at most at the beginning of the management term and then that's the entire support you get apart from perhaps a review at the end of the year. That's just simply not adequate for most people to step into this role. What I would encourage would be for people to get involved in community. There is a huge amount of leadership communities in the public space in in any country in the world. Also your peers. So often we look to management for help. We look to the people that we manage for help in terms of feedback. But often we forget to manage and to build relationships across the hierarchy, the people that are the same level of us. Try and find mentors, people who have done this before, people that you are open enough and that you feel safe enough to grow relationships with across the hierarchy as well. And if you can find an exemplar to model behaviour on, then so much the better. What about mentoring programmes and those sort of things? How are organisations tackling that? Well, organisations tackle it differently. Some don't tackle it at all. I've seen many organisations, especially in the financial sector, who it's totally ad hoc if it happens at all, and it's up to people to do it in their own time. Organisations in other areas, I've seen in retail, meaning retail as in shopping, not retail banking, have sometimes better programmes in terms of mentorship. So it, I think it's different in different organisations. But again, if you, if, whether you have it, if you have that kind of programme in the organisation, make use of it because often they are voluntary. 
Uh, if you don't have that, then you can always create communities of practice for the type of thing that you want to learn in. So that's another method. And then just go and find people, speak to people. People are always willing to give their opinion. And if you can go and ask for help, there's normally someone out there who's willing to share their advice and their opinion to you. But just remember also that mentoring is more than about someone telling you what to do. Mentoring is about growing a person and giving them options such that they can try and work it out for themselves. So if you are taking mentoring or want to be a mentor, then remember that it's about growing you as an individual or growing the other as an individual rather than just giving them your pennies worth or cents worth about the solution. Because we want them to be able to solve the next problem and the next problem and the next problem, not just this one. Thinking a bit broader, yeah. in the work that you've been doing with large organisations lately, what are the big trends? What's at the bleeding edge? Yeah, for sure. So certainly leadership, which we've already talked about. I think that more and more as an agile community, moving towards really what I think of as a, really a business community, creating amazing business organisations, the challenge is, is that a lot of this new way of thinking, if you like, has been bottom up. And that has left us with a lot of enthusiasm at the lower end of the hierarchies and a lack of understanding about complex adaptive problems at the more senior levels of the organisation. And so I see that one of the cutting edges here, if you, if you like, is really bringing leadership on board. And, and as I say again, it's not about convincing leadership or selling to leadership or getting leadership to do X, Y and Z. It's about actually including them and their problems and understanding what it is that they face and then offering to you some of the things that we've learnt to help them solve their problems. And then, you know, through coaching techniques of real listening, then we have some chance of about getting their permission and their okay to make some of the more meaningful and deep changes that are needed for the entire organisation to change. So I, I think that that is an area which we'll see loads of development in and inclusion in over the next year or so. Other areas I think are what I call healing of the organisational wound of the business being split with tech. So I see the tech industry as a service industry what we're doing is that we are servicing the needs of the business and when you actually get down to it there is no definition of any difference between the business and tech we're actually all in this together one can't fail and the other succeed it's all about both succeeding and I think that that's really where many organizations need to restructure actually go as far as to say restructure to create product and service-based teams and not tech and the business teams. Then, of course, other areas which are getting much more involved are HR. And I think that the programs which I'm seeing in that area are much more human-friendly than they have been in, ye in years to come. Many HR departments have been there to protect the company against its staff, whereas I think that that trend is changing, at least part of HR is changing, to move away from things like retention into enthusiasm and amazing places to work so that people want to stay there rather than being incentivized by cash. So apart from the financial sector, I'm, I'm seeing lots more changes in those areas. I think the financial sector hasn't really caught up with that yet. So heavily entrenched in bonuses that I don't know how they're going to move out of that anytime soon. The technical space I am seeing, and this has been a slow move for enterprise architecture, 
to move from a design function into a risk management function. And I see that the elements of architecture being designed more in the team, removing the architectural design silo and designing things in the teams and having architects who can code sit in teams so that the teams can solve those problems at the point of work. Coordination then happens with the architectural community of practice so that we're still getting the optimization of the skill set through communities of practice, but we're optimizing architecture in terms of flow to the customer. And then the risk element ties into large scale risk or tying it into the business appetite for risk and making sure that we're building things which are robust in terms of our commercial decisions and the type of frameworks that we use to choose what type of products and services and frameworks that we use in our architecture to match them with the level of agility and business risk that we want. So I see an architectural function still staying there, but only as a risk function. The last thing I would say would be the finance function. So I'm seeing a very slow move, but I think this is going to rapidly increase in terms of the way that we fund technology and the way that we fund our teams. So I think that we're moving much more to a funding a capability rather than projects. And I see that as capabilities get funded, then what that capability is, it's a group of people who have a certain level of skill and certain levels of capability to produce things. And then what we now need to do is figure out what it is we're going to put through that capability, which in Agile we have the perfect mechanism for that, which happens to be a backlog. So we prioritise stuff, we feed it through the capability, and then we have a better way of funding teams. And typically that ends up being someone, a stakeholder somewhere, puts what they want in the backlog and then is held accountable for the business return on that item and then the only thing that they get a slap on the wrist for is not cancelling that project when it's not meeting with their expectations of outcome and I think that we in the tech side of the business can help with this to better create that trust with the business so that we actually choose to report honestly in terms of our progress and the challenges that we've got rather than the green, 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 red (laughs) status that we see in so many organisations. Simon, thanks very much for, for taking the time to talk to us. If people want to get hold of you and continue the conversation, where do they find you? Oh, thank you. So my company is Adventures with Agile, and you can find us at www.adventureswithagile.com. And you can mm-hmm. see the stuff we're doing, the training that we're running, and we've got courses on there, IC Agile certified courses, uh, and other courses as well. Feel free to have a look on the website. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you.